to do architecture always requires some combination of power and money beyond your own. And that's then the condition. And if you simply serve that power and money, somehow architecture disappears. But if you just reject it, it also disappears. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here with Andrew Zago, an architect and educator based in Los Angeles. Andrew joins us today to discuss his interest in architecture as a form of urbanism. Andrew, welcome. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you've spent the better part of the last several decades here Hmm. at various institutional affiliations and various roles. You're clearly an architect, an educator with an international reputation, and one for whom Los Angeles has been more of a home than a subject of study. Is that a fair opening? Yes, uh, although at, at different times it has been an area of study early on, fairly, some fairly intensive studies actually for, for downtown Los Angeles, something that my partner as I stumbled into as, as young architects hanging up our shingle, uh, in fact. Uh, maybe that's a little interesting to talk about. Do you know about this West Coast Gateway? We had set up after coming to Los Angeles and, and working briefly for, for Tom Main, uh, putting together a set of drawings for Sixth Street House. I had went into a partnership, the mysteriously named Oxaruno. And uh, it was with my partner, Boram Shardell, who I'd met uh, when he was teaching at the GSD. This was under, under Henry Cobb's chair at Architecture. Uh, and later with Jeff Kipnis, but not at that time. Uh, we had gotten ourselves into a newspaper, the Los Angeles Herald, which doesn't even exist. This fellow, Leon Whiteson, who used to write a lot. And we suddenly got a phone call from a guy named Nick Patsouris. Now, if you are if you take the flyaway bus to downtown LA, you'll go to Patsouris Plaza. His, one of his um, brainchilds was the LA subway system. He was a Greek immigrant, and he loved this idea of Los Angeles' city of immigrants. We're going to do a West Coast gateway, the West Coast version of the um, Statue of Liberty in New York. Uh, we need an urban plan for it. Can you do it for us? Which was <laughs> shocking for us. And and I think he just thought it was a young firm, and it was just to kind of provoke some ideas, but having a chance then to meet with with uh, Mayor Bradley, meet with Richard Koshal, like a lot of people that I got to know, who was the head of, of uh, MOCA at the time, a number of other important people in the city. And so his idea was to bridge over a large portion of the LA freeway as it goes through downtown uh, between Chinatown and, let's say, Little Tokyo and, and City Hall. And this would have been late 80s, early this 90s? This would have been uh, 1987, 88. Uh, and then there were to be a comp- to, to do an urban plan and then there'd be a competition. And so we did that and we helped them organize the competition. It was won actually by uh, Lisanne Couture and Hani Rashid. Uh, and there was this project called A Steel Cloud that made very much under his under the, the influence still of, of Daniel Liebeskind, whom he had studied and worked with. It got a lot of actually international press and nothing, nothing, it didn't get built, of course. Uh, but at that time, we spent quite a long time looking at Los Angeles. And, and the term for the project was Metopolis, beyond city. Uh, that Los Angeles was a city that was no longer about appearance of a city, that the city you understand and experience is quite powerful, but doesn't reflect itself necessarily in the boulevards and the streets and the buildings and the monuments. And so we made this this 
urban plan out of a series of, of sort of um, strange and discrete islands that would float amongst all of these other existing buildings and, and including over the freeway. And so I, I don't think it was any, certainly was not anything that was about to get built. Uh, but for us, it was a, that was an important project and our first sort of reflection on the city. And I think at, at that time, we were, we were working certainly on, on L.A., were you aware at that point of the the LA school geographers at Soja and the, the people in other contexts and other disciplines right. that were really describing the city and as this kind of polynucleated, right. this kind of you know right. all periphery, no center geography? Yeah, it, not at that time. Eventually, yeah, of course, and and probably somewhere along the line, I'm sure Rainer Banham's architecture, the four ecologies. Uh, again, we 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 when we started on that project, I don't think we knew anything about Los Angeles. Barham had just arrived. I had just arrived. Uh, we didn't know the city. Um, and and it's funny. The, the reason the reason I came was after um, I'm I'm from Detroit, uh, as you know. And after three and a half years in Boston, I realized that when you're in Los Angeles, Honolulu is closer than Boston. And I thought this is as far as I can get <laughs> from <laughs> from. <laughs> From New England and still stay in the continental U.S., but but other than that, knew nothing knew nothing about it. And so at that time in in the mid to late 1980s, mm-hmm. you're beginning your teaching at SciArc. That's right. Would you characterize the city of Los Angeles as still being um, the gateway to the future at that point? I mean, of course, so much of the literature, so much of the imaginary around the city is that it it portends. You know the, right. the the future, the it always horizon, always expansion. Was that still something of that course. you were you know seeking? Yeah, there was a, a collection of essays about Los Angeles that I used to own, and it started with a quote. I think it was um, Theodore Roosevelt that said, "When I'm in California, I am not west; I'm west of the west." <laughs> and so there was this idea that the San Andreas Fault runs up and down the coast, but actually San Francisco is on. The American plate on the other side of the fault, and and Los Angeles is on the Pacific plate, and so it seems like it's some sort of you know geographic uh, global sense, the the tectonic sense that we were no longer really part of the U.S. anymore, but sort of part of this not just the Pacific Rim in terms of how that's talked about, but also um, part of this the space of the Pacific, which always seemed quite interesting, quite enigmatic. So it felt like Los Angeles was there. There there were other things as well. Certainly the way it was being talked about and thought about, maybe less what what I thought about it was, I, I think it was 82, Blade Runner comes out. And of course, a lot of people thought, not just that it was the city of the future in a positive sense, but it was going to be this complicated, dystopic, multicultural future. And it, it felt like that at the time. It certainly is. It's a fantastic city now, but there was kind of, you know, the looming new millennia in Los Angeles all seemed to be um, pointing to some new kind of urban model. So, I mean, I've detected, at least in, in, in my understanding of your work from a from a distance, a, a, a kind of an interesting question about what what is the role of the architect or what is the right. role of the architecture? In a city like Los Angeles, where you know my images of the city, my memories of the city as, a, as an outsider, and, and and so many of the conversations we're having with people, the imaginary of Los Angeles doesn't doesn't really attach to particular buildings in the same right. way, right? Right. It's a cultural landscape. Yeah. You know, we were talking with Christopher Hawthorne in the space about the those views down the L.A. River. Right. And setting aside whether you prefer the kind of core of engineers mid-century kind of modern, or whether you want to see it somehow greener. Right. Um, 
it's not really an architectural project in that sense. Right. No, that's right. That's right. Uh, even though they hired Frank Gehry, apparently, <laughs> to take a look at it. Uh, no, I think this, this is right. And I don't see it as a discouragement, you know, the, the kind of European model of the piazza and the monument and the, the significant um, urban buildings shaping the identity of a city is, um, I love that. I, 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 I truly love that. Uh, I don't think, I don't know if it's because of the scale, if it's because of the ad hoc nature of the city. It, it, it's difficult to imagine any one project having that kind of role in the city, which is not to say there aren't, it isn't possible to make extremely fine and important architecture here, but that, and that architecture can have an urban role, of course, but certainly there, there are buildings that have a keen urban awareness. I, I don't know, and maybe it's still possible and maybe it's, it's just a matter of scale, but it doesn't seem like the buildings are the things that are shaping Los Angeles. The landscape features, right, the mountains and the beach continue right. along with the highway structures continue to be the primary spatial reference, no? Right. That's right. And it, it, the odd thing is, so, so Cyhark, um, they started in Santa Monica technically, and then they moved to the, the far west side uh, near where Frank Gehry's office now is. And uh, I taught when they made that move. I left for a number of years. Uh, when I came back, this was when Neil Denari was the, the uh, director. He figured out a way for them to move downtown into a building and they weren't able to own it for a long time. Now we do. Uh, and they moved into the middle of the arts district, which was had been sleepy for decades and nothing was happening down there at all. I would come back and visit before I, I returned. Things started happening. Los Angeles discovers it has a downtown. Further into downtown proper, you have Tom Gilmore, who's um, he's actually just stepped down as the head of the board at CyArk, Board of Trustees. He's very active on the board, buying up the old bank district and doing that. But this was really a nothing area. Coming to Los Angeles, seeing all these articles about downtown Los Angeles, they would always list proof of why it was turning around. And one of the proofs was CyArk was there. And I thought, wow, when they were on the west side, they could have fallen into the ocean. I don't think the school would have known. And now we had we had Mayor Garcetti as our keynote speaker at graduation a couple of years ago. We're suddenly, regardless of how much urbanism is handled, is is taught at the school. Let's say uh, our our presence is urban and it's important to the city and it's important to Cyark that we're there. I'm just saying that because this downtown thing is a strange phenomenon. It, it's very exciting, the area now that Cyark is, even in the last five years, it's turned into an extremely active chunk of the city. And there's developments within blocks by, you know, blue chip architects and blue chip developers for millions of square feet at a time. It's strange. I, I don't know how to describe this exactly. I love all of that, but I don't like downtown Los Angeles. There we have if it. If I want urbanism, I'll go to New York. I'll go to like <laughs> it's not it's okay. It's okay, but it's not I think it's gotta have at least 
a couple of trees and a place to park also is as dense as LA is. And, and as you probably know, it is, it is actually quite, you know, far denser of a city than, than people give it credit for. But there's a kind of uh, almost a kind of sloppy ad hoc. This is after this, this is after this mm. quality to it. That is its unique contribution to urban form. Let me put it that mm. way. So, so it doesn't take anything away from these downtown developments. It's just, mm. My cup of tea, let's say, is all this other stuff that is uniquely Los Angeles, not us showing that we can also do lofts and we can also uh, do all of these other things that, frankly, lots of other cities do just as well. Would you make a distinction? Is there a distinction that's at between um, the urbanism of Los Angeles and its urbanity? I think so. If I understand the way you're using the, the, the terms properly, it has an urbanity that is broader than its downtown urbanism. Mm. I would say that. I mean, as a as a uh, native Floridian, yeah. I can tell you, you know, in this space, the future of the American city, we spent quite a lot of time in Miami, looking at South Florida, talking yeah. about South Florida. I can say, um, you know, the idea that you know traditional or kind of conservative urban forms accrue to urbanity struck, has always struck me as specious reasoning. Right. Uh, when I when I'm here, I find, of course, like any other metropolitan condition, um, you know the the, the reason we study cities, right? right. The extraordinary, the, the kind of fecundity of the place, the, the immigrant experience, the life, the quality of culture. Um, people here seem to be well-educated. There are challenges right. around that. People seem to have access to quality of life. They seem to have access to, to a, a choice that they want to make about their future. Right. And in that sense, the, the propinquity in space, the rubbing of bodies, the density that you describe, there is a kind of urbanity to Los Angeles that we can characterize that has its qualities, has its charms. I, right. I find it utterly, much of it utterly charming, irrespective of the fact that it doesn't really take the form of these traditional, right. you know, right. kind of urbanistic projects. That, let's that, say. That's right. And in fact, in a lot of these other areas, not the downtown pieces, and I, you know, I, I do also love that the Grand Avenue sort of composition of buildings and, and all of that, but but I wouldn't live there. It continues to get denser and denser, the rambling parts of Los Angeles. So I think it can argue for a fairly aggressive density without losing that quality. The thing that, that bothers me, and you start to see it more and more in the planning department and other kinds of um, pressures, is... Uh, the city trying to clean up its act. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of times when you're trying to do projects in the city, they'll ask you to look at surrounding buildings and look at materials and get clues from those materials and see where they're sitting. And it, these are things that happen in every city. And also, um, what is the thing that the planning department always tells you? No big uninterrupted service surfaces. You have to break every building up so it looks like a lot of small buildings one after another. Um, a, the, the brave exception to that is actually Michael Maltzen's Santa Fe uh, apartments right across the street from CyArk, uh, which is unapologetically uh, singular and, and uh, relatively unbroken along its length. But it's this idea that Los Angeles, as it gets older, it ought, it ought to behave nicely and be a little, can't we be a little more like if not San Francisco, maybe a little like Pasadena. And I'm thinking, heaven forbid, the greatness of the city is you can do one stupid thing after another. And there's no problem with that. And it, we have to instead embrace that as, again, as I was saying, as our, our kind of 
gift to urbanism. I, I want to return to your experience at, at CyArc. You've been sure. there for in various roles for many decades. Yeah. But I want to return to your, your formulation about how even though CyArc emerged and became quite an important institution in the building of da downtown Los right. Angeles, it wasn't always that the urban arts were central to the pedagogy of nope. CyArc. Absolutely And not. of course, it's a plural institution with yep. many voices and yep. many histories. But I, I want to I hear from you more about... What role has the city or thinking about Los Angeles in particular played in the education of the architect at CyArc in your, in your experience? Well, I, I think a few things. Um, I, I sometimes go around and present the school at, at other schools when, uh, because of this name recognition problem. You know, people don't necessarily know where it is unless, uh, what it is unless they're already involved in architecture. And I do mention that one of the great assets is that you study in the middle of Los Angeles. And so all, regardless of what any particular studio might be doing, you can't help but be in the city and involved with the city. We did a major school-wide charrette on, on homelessness where everything was suspended for the better part of a week, maybe longer, uh, to address this. You know, I, I jokingly say, well, we solved it. It's all done. So, But I think realistically, I don't think that was ever the goal so much as to get new ideas, but I think it really had to do with allowing all the students and frankly, the faculty as well to understand much more deeply all of the reasons why some of the Los Angeles and some of the areas extremely close to CyArc uh, look the way they do. So I think there is a kind of urban consciousness there. It's it's interesting. CyArc has the reputation it has, and, and some of its its we joke sometimes about some of its formal excesses and and eccentricities. But one thing that is true is we are a standalone architecture school. There's virtually none in the world. Uh, 500 students roughly broken down between graduates and undergrads in equal measures. And all these two accredited programs do is teach architecture, not landscape, not urbanism, et cetera. We have a post-grad programs that have been growing, but they're quite small, a handful of, of students in each one about technologies, about fictions and media and technology and, and urbanism. Our urbanism program, in fact, uh, has just been taken over by Tom Main. He's left. He's one of the founders of the school. He left UCLA and is now uh, running this, this urban post-grab program at CyArc. But I, in its earlier iterations, I was involved with it from time to time. And what I always said, and this is maybe more about CyArc and urbanism rather than Los Angeles per se, is that we're not very good at being urban specialists and for us to try to pretend like we're urban economists or, you know, uh, infrastructural experts or anything like that. There's a lot of other schools with deep benches of expertise in this. Uh, we're experts in architectural form. And while it may be difficult to gauge exactly what that does in terms of transforming a city, we understand it's not zero. And in fact, we're great at that. And so when I would always do a, a studio in that, it would always be about architecture as urbanism, as opposed to architects pretending that we're urbanists. It's a helpful formulation. I know that in those institutions that are, you know, kind of multivariate, that have all of the cognate disciplines that have, as we did the GSD, landscape, architecture, right. urban design, urban planning. Um, I think among the challenges that we face as, a, as an institution always is, how do these disciplines, as they mature and grow and evolve, how do they communicate with one another? Right. I mean, I mean, broadly, you know, my view is that un until the 1960s, you know, 
institutions uh, like ours or maybe um, Columbia or other institutions that gathered these disciplines together, they tended to do so acknowledging the disciplinary and professional differences, but with a sense of shared commitment to right. some kind of a project, uh, cultural or otherwise. And I think in the wake of the 1960s, my perception is certainly in the United States is that many of these disciplines were radicalized and toward different ends. You know, right. as planning was radicalized toward uh, social science and, and, and policy and politics and landscape was radicalized around environmental issues. And architecture has had a tendency, this is a very broad brush, obviously, but architecture has had a tendency to kind of withdraw into its own cultural autonomy for periods of time. Right. You know, I mean, I, I joke that my friend Still. My friend Scott Cohen, mm -hmm. he, part of his job when he was chair of, of the Department of Architecture at the GSD was to pr protect architecture from people like me and my interest <laughs> in landscape. And we, we would joke about this, but there is something about the idea of architecture as an autonomous cultural form yeah. uh, that I think Cyarch has played quite an important role in, in yeah. maintaining, inculcating. And in some ways, is, is it too strong to say this is in some way at odds with the role of the architect in shaping the city? No, I'm going to, in fact, this is an important question and, and, and is going to go broader than the discussion of Los Angeles. When we were first brought out to, it was all the events leading up to this were handled at PS1 for this MoMA project. Barry Bergdahl, who was the curator at MoMA, it was describing about this being a real project and real solutions and not a occasion for exotic formal excesses, et cetera. And then we were all up to speak. And I said, well, as a representative of exotic formal excesses, <laughs> let me make an argument for it, please. And it was that what happens is there, there's, there's two sides. And this is something that I find myself arguing often at SciArc, which is that I, I take very seriously our seemingly over-internalized and trivial disciplinary obsessions. Should a wall be like this? What if it's crooked? When did that happen? All of all of these things that that occur, and I say, well, if we spend all of our time on this and it's serious, and we're reasonably intelligent, creative people, then it must have a reason why this is coming up. So when we're faced with a real project, don't be ashamed of our own diagrams and think, oh my God, this is a real project. We have to pretend like we're the economist or the sociologist or the uh, ecologist. And, and instead to imagine that if what we're doing makes sense, then it can translate out into the world. And this is what I told them we would do. I said, I don't know what we're going to do, but we're going to do it. And we thought about a lot of things. One of the odd things that we'd been working on, and I, again, not to get into the too, in, in too complicated of a way, but I'd spent a lot of my architectural life thinking about the nature of objects and buildings. When you go about making a building, they're very good at becoming an object. And I thought that there's a certain nefarious quality to that, the hegemony that an object exerts in the world, the shiny skyscraper. The, and so a whole series of studies that I did and those my former partners had to do with how to weaken that autonomy. An entire area called weak form, that's something that we worked on and Peter Eisman was working on at the same time, came out of that. One of the things that I always, I was thinking about the question of the coincidence of material definitions and geometry. And, and that's very simple. We can look at any room, such as the one we're in. The floor is wood and the walls are painted and where the two materials change is always where the geometry changes. So where there's a 90 degree break, that's where the material changes. This sounds silly, I know, but when you start, I started noticing this always happens. So what if you just 
So I imagine like those poorly printed comic books or Andy Warhol's uh, Marilyn Monroe where you have a misregistration that you have the bad printing. It's almost the same object, but things start to liberate and become free of one another ever so slightly. We looked at the suburb that had failed. It was well underway. The infrastructure was there. The plotting was there. And, and I talked to David Bergman, our economist. I talked to Alex Felsen, who was our, our ecologist and to others. And I was saying, look, this is a, a mono ecology. There's one kind of income here. There's one kind of landscaping. There's one kind of ownership model. There's et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You take this wild wilderness and you put one thing on there. So then we went in there and began to literally began misregistering these qualities. So you would have slippages. So between the suburban lawns, you could have these wilderness corridors that would slide in. Between things that were owned outright by single families, you would have overlapping properties that became networks of land banks. Uh, we, we start, and we did it with the architectural form as well, breaking down the indoor and the outdoor space. Uh, and so we found that I think that was our proof that there is this kind of interest in breaking down the lockstep um, autonomy of qualities within an object. And that when we projected it onto this suburban development, it turns out that that did kind of resonate. It wasn't just a, it wasn't a random observation. And it's relaxation. I think this was, uh, we were working with Bob Somal at the time in his his term for it was property with properties, <laughs> which we talked about as a disciplined relaxation of boundaries. Mm. So this misregistration, this kind of slippage yeah. in part you attribute in some ways to an interest in weak form. Yeah. And in some ways one can see a world that is urbanizing without us, right? With, right. Without design, without architecture. Correct. And at the same moment, I hear in your, in your characterization that something about the architectural project kind of persists. Oh, I, I think that's right. I, I think it's more that what we wanted to do with the idea of the misregistration was to set up the fundamental framework around which we would understand the project and that we started realizing it did unspool into a kind of logic in these other fields as well. Otherwise, you know, it wouldn't have gone very far. Uh, there's other things that we're interested in, which wouldn't have been appropriate in that, in that context. How would you characterize the the relationship between SARC as an institution and thinking about these, um, let's call them externalities, the right. societal conditions right. that we're in the midst of, whether it be affordability and access and equity to housing right. or questions of uh, you know, financial or economic equity, yeah. questions of identity politics in the city today. These are the things that are, that are really at the, at the fore of the conversations we're having with students today. Right. I think students come into the design school today expecting their work to be political, to affect change right. through design. Are these among the considerations? Yeah, of course. And just generally in the school, I would say they're among the considerations. And, and I say that because historically that's been a kind of blind spot at the school. But I think it's, it is something that is coming in increasingly to SciArc. It was an interesting thing. Um, Henry Cobb came and, and, and did a number of things at SciArc a few years ago, including do an installation in the gallery, like his first like art installation. He was very happy with it and, and gave a brilliant lecture. And part of it was reflecting on what SciArc would mean, observing the fact that, of course, what, what we don't have is obvious, that we don't have the breadth of other disciplines to be able to interact with and draw. I mean, we can, you know, in, in other ways, but not just within the, the institution. But what we have on the other hand is the ability to 
focus very intensively on certain technical, formal, aesthetic questions of architecture, we're more equipped to work with that than almost any school in, in the world, I think. You're describing a very, in a way, classical cultural project, right? The kind of maintenance of a cultural yeah. project. And and in that regard, um, I think many disciplines, certainly architecture exists in this dialectic long durée where if we never engage with any of those social, economic, political, environmental considerations, we end up, I, I don't know where, we end up something like opera. I, right. There's nothing, <laughs> not, there's nothing wrong with that. Right, I think right, opera right, seems right, to be doing just fine. Right, um, right, but having right. said that, if we purely define ourselves in, the, in, in, in service terms to those other right. challenges, I think you're describing a condition where it's not necessarily clear why this cultural project would want to be persisted with. You know? No, that's right. And, and look, there's also a possibility. I was telling these same thesis students, I said, I don't, I'm pretty sure in all of our lives, there's still going to be a lot of buildings. And we understand that there's things one can do that turns buildings into not only a, a, a thing of great evocative beauty, but also a thing of progressive cultural development. And so we're okay. You know, that'll happen. It's just maybe less important than it had been at other times. And I said, it's very possible that there's things that are more interesting than architecture right now and things that are more important than architecture right now. But it doesn't mean that we can do all of those things. You know, I understand there's certainly things as a conscientious uh, professional that I do and think about a lot in terms of the climate, in terms of ecology, in terms of equity. That doesn't necessarily tell me that the wall is going to go this angle or that angle which I think of as an incredibly important project, but it's not the tool, you know, work on this other stuff, but architecture isn't always the tool to, to work on every problem. And that's okay. A painting is not going to solve world hunger. You know, there, there's other things you can do and you don't want people to stop painting just because it can't directly solve uh, these problems. Architecture is more engaged, obviously, than these, these fields, but, but I think it, it, it needs to have at some point be conscious of its engagement and also think, well, we may just become opera. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting in these times, we, we seem to be, I, I don't know if this is the case here in Southern California or at SciArc, but we seem to be at a moment in American life where we're on the cusp of a kind of new progressive era. But at the same moment, I think when we look at the history of the, you know, whether it's the the New Deal in the 1930s or whether we look at the wake of the 1960s, right. these progressive eras have often produced uh, a real question around the status of arch the architectural right. project. Right. I mean, uh, I think very often it was the case that one could look at architecture as really enmeshed in power structures, as really an instrument of power relationships, right. as an expression of power. And therefore, I think uh, for, for generations at certain moments in, in our history, uh, we, you know, we've, architecture has been seen to be really allied with the forces that produce the conditions. On the other hand, I hear, a part of what I hear you saying is that it's not clear that Los Angeles's housing crisis is stemming from too much architecture, right? <laughs> right? right? It's not clear to me that the right. economic crisis that you were working on with the MoMA project in right. 09, 10, that the, the financial crisis was the product of too much architecture. Right. That's right. This is one of the things I tell my students. To do architecture always requires some combination of power and money beyond your own. And that's then the condition. 
And if you simply serve that power and money, somehow architecture disappears. But if you just reject it, it also disappears. <laughs> because we are, this is, this is what, this is what it is an art form, uh, but it's, it is the most engaged and, and uh, I always think the most dangerous art form. I want to pivot and talk a little bit more about you. So you, you've mentioned <laughs> Detroit and at, at various moments in time, you've returned, you mentioned you've returned to mm -hmm. Detroit for practice. Yep. And, and so tell us about growing up in Detroit. Your, your, your father was an architect. Do I have that correct? Yeah. I, uh, technically, uh, he, was an, he was an Italian immigrant, it was Geometra, which it was in a small town in, in the Veneto, which would be kind of like country doctor. You know, he would do land deeds, he would do accessory buildings, he would do some infrastructure work um, and came to the United States and, and always worked for firms that did some of the, 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 the old Italian guy who knew how to do all the details. And he always worked on, on um, a lot of the giant shopping malls actually for Taubman all around the country. Uh, um, so, but that was, um, yeah, my background though was in, was in fine arts. Uh, Growing up, at some point when I was in, in high school, my parents moved out to the suburbs, part of the white flight that characterized the, the 70s in, in the Detroit area and a lot of other uh, cities. And uh, but, but for the rest of it, I was a product of the Detroit public schools. Starting from high school, college on, I never, it was like a dead zone. I didn't think anything about the city whatsoever and left. I didn't have any plans to go back there whatsoever. I left... Uh, um, SciArc originally, I think it was 93, uh, because I was offered a position at Cornell as a visitor for, ended up being a couple of years. On my way back, someone asked me if I could do a visiting thing at, at the University of Michigan. While I was there, I started poking around in the city of Detroit, and I thought, wow, I don't... <laughs> so this would have been 95, 96, when you could still just take your car and drive it into the train station and in the lobby and drive around the lobby of the, of the old train station and come out. And I thought, well, this is, I could go back to Los Angeles. Um, but I thought I, I, this was the most amazing urban tableau I had ever seen in my life. And I thought, I just need to spend some time here and, and think about the city and, and work on the city a little bit. And so I hung my shingle there and, and was there for, for a number of years. In fact, at some point then I got, uh, I went to New York. I started the, the I, I formed the graduate program at the City College of New York uh, and did that and, and was not happy being that level of, of administrator. And then I moved to, to SciArc. But that whole time I still had the Detroit practice and I was going back and forth until maybe mm, six years ago or seven years ago. Uh, I, I, I joke, um, like Sciarc, Detroit, and I have a love-hate relationship. The two places, <laughs> my family, Detroit, and Sciarc. Well, you keep you keep going back. So so moving there in the, the, the mid-90s, yeah. you saw something in Detroit in part that I also saw when I was teaching the University of Michigan, which was its relative unstudied nature. Like, right. I was, ex I mean, as a, right. as a fellow at the University of Michigan in the 1990s, I was struck by how little was being done. Of course, that's now changed. I mean, of course, it's in a way, Detroit is back and it's been overreported. Um, but yeah. I think uh, you were am among the first people that I saw that corroborated my sense that as it 
as a laboratory for thinking about the city and architecture. Right. It's also struck me that this pavilion on the Lower East Side is among the first pieces of your work that I saw. I was just struck by it. It's, it's, um, it's hard really to characterize for people that haven't seen the work. I mean, it's a, it's, you, you describe it as a modest thing, but it is apt. It seems somehow, on the one hand, right. it occupies uh, the role that architecture used to, right. but also speaks to architecture's absence in right. a way. Right. Yeah, and and we we were we were happy with it. It's funny. I had this conversation with uh, uh, Walter Hood, uh, landscape architect, re recently talking about Detroit, talking about these other kind of working with these kinds of marginal communities. That was for this little tree planting nonprofit. And I always thought that well, you know, the, there's the everyday urbanism, which is just colleagues who, who would embrace that term. And I always thought when it doesn't matter who the client is or who the this goes back to our urban question, what the situation is. Is it condescending of me not to exercise what I think of as my most important disciplinary obsessions on that project? Like we always try to imagine that somehow in that situation, that architecture, architecture capital A would be a good, a civic good. <laughs> And not simply um, a surrogate for other political failings or a surrogate right. for absent economies or right. a stand-in right. or a kind of lamentation of a community that's that's suffered quite a lot. Right, which it has, it gets plenty of that now. You, you know very well about the numbers. There is maybe a slight slowdown in the depopulation of Detroit, but still it is an, physically an enormous city. It has lost an enormous number of people. And at some point after they, they were talking about after white flight, bright flight, anybody who was making over 30,000 a year would move out of the city. And so it is this enormous city to maintain with very few people and the people that are there don't have a lot of money. So it, it takes more than a few neighborhoods of artists doing good, God bless them. Uh, there's deep, deep structural problems with the city. I, I was there. I had my office there. And at one at the end, it was near Wayne State University. Everyone in that neighborhood knew that if there was something serious going on and you call the police, they'll come the next day. You call the Wayne State University police, that they acted as the de facto police for that neighborhood. We go to downtown Detroit and we have some very wealthy landowners that have their own police force. This is like Mogadishu. This is like that. Um, that's not a city, you know? And so you make these little pockets of this and little pockets of that. And I think there's a different kind of structural transformation that needs to, that needs to take place there. And, and I, you know, I'm, I haven't been very active there in the last few years. And so I, I don't feel like I, I can speak too much about it. I know you've expressed an interest both in your teaching and research in the question of color. Yes. Uh, right. Not just in the urban environments, but yep. also with respect to, to architecture. You, you're trained in the fine arts. You yep. studied painting. Painting and lithography. Um, so tell us about that interest, where it comes from, and, and how you work with your students. Well, it, it's funny. It's, it's easy to describe. It's a difficult technical undertaking. And, and what it is, is it, it goes back to this, the, the breakdown in painting between diseño and colore. So this is Vasari. <laughs> and that you either have diseño, which is a painting is primarily about line and the draftsmanship and color is there to fill it in. Or you have colore where you construct the painting itself out of color. And this would be, let's say, frescoes in Florence would be diseño. And this would be oil painting, wet, 
transparent, uh, slow-drying painting in Venice. And that architecture, for a lot of very practical reasons, has always found itself more, more closely aligned with disegno and not with colore. That's because if you want to do a building, you need to delineate it very clearly because it's built by others and it's a large construction and stable. And so there's always been this idea that the form and the volume, like Corbusier talks about this, he has an interest in color, but he makes it very clear that it's there to make form look clearer. The clarity of the form needs to be underlined. Uh, this is not unrelated to the misregistration, by the way. But I was always interested, maybe from coming out of my painting background, with the idea of, let's say, a Mark Rothko painting, where the entire, the entire structure of the painting is made through these atmospheric effects of color. It doesn't translate. Architecture doesn't do soft edges well. Maybe it comes out of the fact that I was into lithography as well. I got very interested in techniques of printing. Every magazine, if you get a loop and look up close, it doesn't matter what the photograph is, it looks identical. It's the halftone um, pattern of dots. But from a distance, of course, it's completely different. Between that, spending a lot of time in Chicago looking at uh, Surat paintings with and the fact that there is a almost limitless complexity that's possible to execute with digital technology, started to work on these very complicated layers and sub-layers of color in order to be able to produce something that's tectonically stable, but would produce these atmospheric effects. So it turns out that was a, a sub-project. And it seemed like within a city to have suddenly, you know, a giant atmospheric painting um, instead of the clear edge of a building, just goes back to the question of buildings as, as exercising a kind of object-like hegemony in the city, that that was, uh, it could be both beautiful and politically subversive. <laughs> hmm. I'm reminded of the, the presence of media in Los Angeles. Right. Uh, on the one hand, uh, you know, it, there's a sense that the city is, you know, promoting itself to itself, right? right. The industry is communicating with itself. Right. But I, I wonder, are there examples either in your work or the work of others in the city of Los Angeles where you, you see moments of, of the kind of mediation of the architectural surface being productive in that, in that regard? Well, that's interesting. And I, it's, it's funny. So part of the, the arts district of Los Angeles is they have all these murals. And there's few things I, I, I adore the Diego Rivera murals in the Art Institute of in the Detroit uh, Institute of Arts, uh, but as a rule, I really dislike murals and 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 graffiti art and uh, all of these other things, and so I always worry that it could slip into that. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, somehow it sounds incorrect for me to say I don't think of these as media surfaces because it seems close enough to that, but I I would think they're not. I know that you've also been interested in accident and uh -huh, error. Of course. Uh, is this related to misregistration and, and No, it's separate. Uh, I guess they're they're related at, at some level. Um, and and it's interesting. I, I did think about this through Detroit as well in terms of kind of urbanism and and there's two or three different scales at which it happens. And it really came about from seeing this um, exhibition Unknown Quantities at the Cartier Foundation that Paul Virilio had put together maybe 20 years ago. Uh, and it was quite interesting. And his, his accident thesis is, is brilliant. And, and I, so I, I, don't, I, I don't claim any, any um, authorship of that. But when I would look through it, I realized that there was this amazing formal qualities to accidents and that there's a kind of formal history to them that is not the same as the formal history of the thing, the objects that are involved in the accident, 
but it's a kind of corollary to it. So, you know, I suppose in ancient Greece, you get a rock and you turn it into a column and then there's an earthquake and it kind of turns into a rock again. You know, so we started looking through these kinds of automobile accidents and train accidents and spills and realizing that it's it's horrible. I mean, it's not a it's not a pleasant subject, but there's a kind of uh, beautiful kind of uh, unraveling of technological systems. We, there was a long a lot of talk a number of years ago about bottom up assemblies, self-organizing systems, et cetera, which is what matter does. And let's say the airplane is the opposite of that. It's a top down. But somehow it's composed of matter. And so I always joke, it's like we have a technological as assembly and then matter behaves badly. And whether it's a gust, whether it's a short circuit, whether it's a stress failure, whatever that would be, that when this is uh, Virilio's thesis, the, the, the man who invents the automobile invents the automobile accident. Yeah. You don't know where and when it's going to happen, what it's going to look like, but it's built within that. And so I just, I've always been interested in this idea between complete instrumental control and then the complexity, whether it's material or world systems and events, coming back and unraveling that and the two together making an arrangement. It seems like a lot of cities are exactly like that. So Chicago is not the Burnham plan, but it's not not the Burnham plan. It Accidents happen and Detroit in a different way. That's not because of counter development forces and, you know, but you have this entire mechanism for generating the city that's put into place. And then the system breaks down. Framing that as um, contingency, right. accident, error, um, a kind of a recognition of someone else's intention when awry. Right. It strikes me as a really helpful formulation to understand a city like Los Angeles. Well, and it also, so if you, so if you, it was an attempt to not to get rid of the picturesque, the picturesque ruin, let's say, but to say that's a tiny little subset that gets quite fascinating and complicated and sometimes gruesome, sometimes unexpected, the whole way in which the world is put together and the world is unraveled. And those two things always have to interact with one another that sometimes we frame it as a, you know, a horrible thing you want to turn away from. Otherwise, other times in an English garden, you will actually reconstruct the ruin so that it would appear uh, in, in a certain way. And so uh, trying to imagine a, a general theory of an inescapable formal category. The idea that one would educate an architect to be self-aware that their best intentions right. will be someone else's accident strikes right. me as a really powerful <laughs> pedagogical model. Um, Andrew Zago, thanks so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilliard, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.